0: Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you, and may they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Something strange happened last month at the St. Louis Zoo. A 62-year-old female snake, a python to be precise, was found coiled around a clutch of serpent eggs. The eggs were hers, but she had not been anywhere near a male in at least 15 years. And while it's true that pythons can sometimes reproduce asexually, the eggs are currently being tested to be Uh, determined if that is indeed what happened here. We can't wait for the samples to be tested to actually get that information, reported the zoo's chief herpetologist, because that will end any of the hearsay. That strikes me as an odd choice of words. I don't know what kind of hearsay or rumors have been floating around the snake pens of the St. Louis Zoo. But when one news site picked up the story, an online commenter generously offered, if no one else is gonna take responsibility, I'm willing to do the honorable thing and marry this snake. It's a light story for a light news day. But it recalled another piece that I'd read recently, a much darker tale about a rooster that had mysteriously laid a solitary egg in the town of Basel, Switzerland, in the year 1474. Roosters, of course, are male. So this was a startling discovery. And given the religious superstition of 15th century Europe, well, things did not end well for the rooster. You see, in those days, it was believed that witches would put curses on various livestock for their own diabolical ends. In the case of chickens, these maledictions and spells could produce tainted eggs, which in turn spawned vile creatures. One of these, feared above all others, was the dreaded cockatrice, a kind of dragon with the plumed head of a rooster. The cockatrice was a fearsome beast, a bloodthirsty monster. And well, the good Christian folks of Basil wanted nothing to do with it. Fearing what evil might lurk inside this egg and refusing to take any chances, they did what God-fearing folks in those days did best. They charged the rooster with witchcraft and placed him on trial in the town square. The chicken was assigned a prosecutor as well as a public defender. No, I am not making this up. On behalf of the gallinaceous prisoner, the town's chronicles attest. The facts of the case were admitted, but his advocate submitted that no evil animus had been proved against his client and no injury to man or beast had resulted. Besides, the laying of the egg was an involuntary act and as such, not punishable by law. If it was intended to impute the crime of sorcery to his client, that is the rooster, he was entitled to an acquittal. For there was no instance on record of Satan having made a compact with one of the brute creation. Well, that eloquent defense apparently swayed no one. It was determined that the chicken was cursed, possessed by the devil, and the bird, along with the egg that had inspired such fear and superstition, were both burned at the stake. It's kind of a sad story, really, but who was to blame? Was it the rooster or was it the townsfolk that were really guilty of foul play? That was probably the longest lead up to a pun that you've ever heard. But there actually is a point to this story, namely that when people decide something is evil, they feel justified in attacking it with impunity. It's like that whole argument about whether it's okay to punch a Nazi in the face. Does he have it coming? Absolutely, but slow down there, cowboy. The violence might hurt you more than it hurts him. One should take care when fighting monsters, as Nietzsche famously warned, lest you become one yourself. Those medieval townsfolk were afraid that a cockatrice was growing inside of the rooster's egg. But they failed to notice what was growing inside of them. Fear, superstition, and malice curling around their hearts like weeds, something far worse than any mythical creature, something real and far more dangerous. Now, belief in cursed livestock might seem awfully old-fashioned, so 15th century, as it were, but if we take the notion of blessing seriously, as we do here in church, should we not also consider the other side of the coin? When we bless someone, we pour out our love upon them and we ask for God's grace to nurture them. But what happens if we curse someone? Is that even a thing? Well, there are some folks today who still dabble in curses, hexes, and other maledictions. There was an uproar in the witchcraft community last month on TikTok, the popular video sharing site, when a gang of teenage girls, calling themselves baby witches, decided to take it upon themselves to hex the moon. Some of the more seasoned practitioners claimed that this was reckless and dangerous, that they'd angered the goddess Artemis, who is apparently associated with the moon, I guess, and that there would be a divine reckoning. Others pointed out that the hexers were only hurting themselves by pouring bad intentions into the universe. They were corrupting their own relationship with nature. And that might not be too far from the truth. In any case, we don't curse in church, not the moon, not livestock, not our enemies. But I noticed something a bit troubling these past couple of weeks, since the president got a positive COVID test. I saw that a lot of my colleagues on social media, men and women of the cloth, had begun trying to reclaim the practice of imprecatory prayer. Now don't feel bad if you've never heard of that before, it's not really a part of the mainline Protestant tradition, though it does have biblical roots in the Psalms. Imprecatory prayer is basically the act of invoking a curse on someone, calling upon God for their judgment and for some kind of calamity to befall them. It's not the sort of thing we normally do in church. You won't find a prayer of imprecation in your worship bulletin nestled in between the invocation and the confession. But here were a startling number of my brethren suddenly calling for imprecatory prayers to be hurled at the president. Now, to be fair, some degree of schadenfraud is to be expected in these circumstances. The president has courted disaster by his own refusal to wear a mask or to take the pandemic as seriously as he should. The irony is inescapable. But, while it may be a bridge too far for some folks to feel any real sympathy, there's some distance between sympathy and hoping that the guy gets sick and dies. There's been a joke going around that Ruth Bader Ginsburg has successfully argued her first case before God, implying that God has smited, smitten, Smote, I think it's smote, smote the president in an act of divine retribution. Is that what we believe now, that God gives people the coronavirus? As I mentioned in passing, the Psalms are filled with this sort of theology. The psalmist asks God to condemn his enemies, to annihilate them in cruel and unusual ways. May his days be few. Read Psalm 109. May another seize his position. May his children be orphans and his wife a widow. May his children wander and beg. May they be driven out of the ruins they inhabit. He wore his curses like a coat, it goes on. May they soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. But Jesus, as he often does, offers a different way, encouraging us, instead, to love our enemies. But why? Why does he seem to believe it with such conviction that he doesn't even condemn the very people trying to crucify him? Why should we love people who don't deserve it? Why should we not despise the perpetrators of injustice with all of our being? The answer, is in this text when Jesus reminds us, forgive and you will be forgiven. The measure you give will be the measure you get back. We should love the people we call enemies, not necessarily because they deserve it or because we owe them something or because it's good for them. But on the contrary, rather, because it's good for us. Because when we don't, something bad begins to grow inside of us. When we curse others, those ill intentions sink into us like water, like oil in our bones. When I was in elementary school, I got picked on a lot. I've spoken about that at some length already. And you know, I used to write these martial arts revenge fantasies, you know, stories about how I would single-handedly take out all of the bullies with slow-motion roundhouse kicks to their stupid faces and so on, that sort of thing. One day, after some of the other kids had been giving me a hard time, the janitor came over to dispense a little bit of wisdom. His name was Mr. Therian but he insisted on being called Mr. T which was a bit of a presumptuous nickname in the 80s, but he was an okay guy. I saw those other kids pointing at you and laughing, he told me. But you know, when someone points their finger at you, he reminded me, they're really pointing three fingers back at themselves. It was not the most helpful advice I'd ever received, But there was wisdom in it. When we hurl a curse at someone, pour out our hatred upon them, it tends to do more damage to us. In his notorious book of poetry called, The Flowers of Evil, Charles Baudelaire writes eloquently about the dangers of hatred and the ways in which it poisons the garden of the soul until nothing is left. This is captured vividly in his poem, the enemy. My childhood was only a menacing shower, cut now and then by hours of brilliant heat. All the topsoil was killed by rain and sleet. My garden hardly bore a standing flower. From now on, my mind's autumn, I must take the field and dress my beds with spade and rake and restore order to my flooded grounds. There the rain raised mountains like burial mounds. I throw fresh seeds out. Who knows what survives? What elements will give us life and food? This soil is irrigated by the tides. Time and nature sluice away our lives. A virus eats the heart out of our sides, grows by drawing strength from the blood we lose. Who is the enemy, really? Is it another person? Or is it the hatred that feeds on humankind like some kind of monster? Friends, when we love our enemies, we tend our gardens. When we curse them, we allow ourselves to be overrun with weeds and thorny vines and vile creatures. And so, I wonder... And I ask, what grows in your garden? Amen.